Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, we always need to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, who is the one who indwells us and fills us, teaches us his word, helps us to understand what God has revealed to us in his word. So we have a few moments of silent prayer for the use of 1 John 1, 9, confession of sin to God the Father if necessary for the recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit and restoration of fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to worship you. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation to assemble, to teach the truth of your word unhindered and unfettered by government interference. Father, we thank you for the heritage of freedom that we have in this nation because of those who have uh, made the ultimate sacrifice that we might have this freedom. Father, even now as we continue as a nation in this war against terrorism, we pray that you might continue to give strength and wisdom to our leaders, that they might uh, discern what the real issues are, that their intelligence services might uh, collect the right information, and we might perceive that which is the most uh, valuable information, act upon that. Father, we pray that you would uh, restrain and hinder the forces that seek to uh, bring harm to this nation, and that you would protect, continue to protect us even as we continue to recognize and hear about ongoing threats to this country. We pray for our president, for our military leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance and strength. Pray for those on the battlefield that they might have courage to do their job. Father, we pray for us as we study your word today that we worship you through the teaching of your word through learning your word because nothing is more important than to understand who you are and what you have done for us and what you have communicated to us. And so we honor you this morning through the study of your word and we pray that you would help us to see how it applies in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our study, First John, I mean, excuse me, that's second hour, First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll pick up a little review. We stopped last time, I think, around verse 24, 25, and we'll pick up a little review back to verse 22. Paul has raised three questions in verse 20. Where is the wise, that is, the philosopher of the day? Where is the scribe, a reference to the Jewish scribe, Jewish religious leaders? 
Third question, where is the disputer, that is, the debater of the age? At that time, we have studied that in Greece, it had become a major form of entertainment to debate issues, and it didn't matter for the debaters whether they were on one side of the issue or another. The issue was simply, uh, the entertainment was simply the form of debate. This, the matter was simply uh, how well they did, uh, the, the rhetoric and oratory that was involved. The content of the arguments was not as significant as being able to do it well and being able to entertain the, the audience. Truth was uh, something that had been lost, so truth was not an issue anymore because they were in an age as we are of moral relativism. In Greek culture, the issue was wisdom, a wisdom that is not unlike the wisdom that many seek in our own culture today, a wisdom for success in life, to be good parents, have a good family, to be successful in business, to be able to uh, uh, achieve and succeed in life, the ability to find happiness and meaning in life. That was an ultimate goal in Greek culture. We find that there are very many similarities between the way they were thinking and the way we think today. And so we have many of the same problems in our churches, in our families, in our individual lives that were manifested in this church in Corinth. That's one reason that it is so important to study this this epistle. It speaks to many issues that are just as much a problem today as they were at that time. And it also gives us a methodology of how to solve problems. One of the things that you face as a pastor is people wanting to come to you for uh, counseling because of various uh, uh, personal crises and problems in their lives. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians is how Paul approached this. Too often today we have adopted a concept or thinking about counseling that has been formed by the influence of secular counseling, the influence of uh, Freudianism, the influence of secular psychotherapy, and that is completely different from the way you see Paul approach the problem. People come with a problem, whatever the uh, issue is that seems to be the, the major um, source of unhappiness in their life at this particular moment, and psychologists call that the presenting problem. And you have all kinds of presenting problems in Corinthians, but Paul doesn't address them so much as he starts by going to the real root issue. And the root issue underlying uh, most marriage problems, most personal problems, if not all problems, is ultimately a spiritual issue. And if you get right with the Lord and learn doctrine and apply doctrine, then these things will work their way out. And if you don't, then you'll continue to make bad decisions from a position of weakness operating on your sin nature, and ultimately you're going to self-destruct personally in your marriage, in your career, whatever arena the problems present themselves in. And that's what we see in Corinth. They fail to understand the implications of some basic doctrines for how they were to think. So Paul doesn't address what we would consider to be the problem, that is so much the suit, the, the ex, external problem, but the real issue is, was how they were thinking, that they were thinking about life in a completely different way, and they were op still operating on the human viewpoint thought systems and the human viewpoint value systems that dominated uh, pagan culture of their their pagan culture, which was uh, Greek philosophy. So he has to start by drawing this contrast between God's way of thinking and man's way of thinking. And God has one way of thinking. We call it divine viewpoint 
or biblical wisdom, and it is one unified viewpoint that God has that's expressed from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation. And God expresses his viewpoint on many different subjects. Every different every category of human endeavor is has some foundation in biblical thought. So whether it's law, politics, whether it's ethics, whether it's family life, whether it's uh has to do with raising children, whatever the arena is, the Word of God has something to say, and that is to be our starting point. The problem with man is he wants to start away from the Word of God and then bring the Word of God into whatever thought system uh, he's already adopted independently of God. So we've taken the time to go through this chart that's up on the overhead on the basis of knowledge, and we just want to briefly review this and make a couple of additional points to this this morning. In human viewpoint thinking, you start independently of God. So this is not saying that reason or experience are irrelevant. As we're going to see again this morning, God obviously uses both human reason and empirical evidence to substantiate the truth of his word, and to validate what he has done. Uh, Yesterday I received a call from uh, Dan Ingram, and Dan's teaching a uh, high school class down at at a church down in Quantico, and one of the kids in the class was asking, well, how do we really know the Bible is true? And so we were talking about uh, answers to that question and how he should approach this as a teacher to take the time to look at uh, Scripture. Scripture assumes its own veracity and it does not start off trying to prove God. All thought systems, and this is the point that I'm making when I look at the starting point, all of these thought systems, whether it's rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, or revelation, all assume their own starting point. You want to talk to some uh, philosopher of science or philosopher of ethics, uh, atheistic philosopher, agnostic philosopher, whatever their system is, if they're operating on rationalism or empiricism, they ultimately assume their own starting point, and all knowledge systems are at some level circular. They assume what they're starting to prove at the very outset. It is embedded, uh, or maybe in an unstated presupposition, but it is embedded in their uh, primary principles, in their first principles. So rationalism starts off, and the one thing nobody ever talks about is the fact that the undergirding presupposition is faith in human ability and human reason to ultimately um, pierce the mysteries of the universe. Rationalism operates on the principle of the independent use of logic and reason, and therefore the rationalist thinks that on the basis of finite human reason, he can then uh, judge the Scriptures as to whether they are true or false. And to do that, you have to have some sort of external vantage point or criterion. The problem is, who establishes what that external criterion is? Empiricism is a second form of of human knowledge that operates independently from God, God's Word. And this has as its starting point human experience, sense perceptions. And once again, the presupposition is that man is able, on his own, apart from any information from God, to accurately interpret his own experience. Once again, it's built on the, the methodology of independent use of logic and reason. This is the foundation of human reason, uh, of human philosophical systems. In contrast to rationalism and empiricism, you always have a reaction when they fail. Uh, historically, people go in and cultures go into mysticism, 
which emphasizes more of a hu- inner, private, intuitive insight into life uh, based on uh, emotion, based on some sort of uh, sometimes visions or dreams, but it, it always is based on a non-logical, non-rational, non-verifiable system. Revelation starts with the starting point that God exists and that God reveals himself to man and that reason and human reason and human experience then operate within the framework of that starting point so that when you come to the scriptures you don't prove the scriptures in the same sense that you might prove a ge- uh, geometrical or a I mean a, a, a proof in geometry you don't prove it in the sense that you might prove something or demonstrate a truth in the uh, biology lab but there are clear evidences of the validity of Scripture. For example, you can go to uh, various, and there's uh, numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that were given many, many years, if not centuries, ahead of time and came true in phenomenal detail. That validates the role of the prophet. You don't have anything in human history that, uh, outside of the Bible that can even come close to that. For example, you have in Ezekiel the um, the prophecy that took the prophecy was given by Ezekiel in about 580 590 BC, and it was a prophecy of the destruction of the seaport town of Tyre in Lebanon. And some 250 years later, when Alexander the Great came down with his army, approximately 330 BC. He surrounds the city of Tyre, and everybody in Tyre, in order to escape the uh, the siege, went out to an island that was just off the coast. I mean, just barely off the coast of uh, of of the mainland of Tyre. And so, in order to get out there, what uh, Alexander did was exactly what Ezekiel had prophesied. Ezekiel prophesied that Tyre would be destroyed, and nothing would be left. Everything would be just scraped down to bedrock, and there wouldn't be a single thing left standing. No evidence of the city at all would be left. And that's exactly what Alexander did. He, in order to build a causeway out to the island, he just completely dismantled the entire town and threw everything out into the water, came along and just scraped off the topsoil in order to fill in all the chinks in the new, this causeway, and that was what enabled him to take his army out to the island. You have other prophecies that we studied, and one we're going to study in about two weeks on Wednesday night in Daniel 9, the precision of Daniel's prophecy related to the 70 weeks that he prophesied that there would be exactly uh, 173,880 days from the issuing of a decree to rebuild the fortifications around the city of Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would enter into Jerusalem. And it was exactly 173,880 days from March or the 4th, 444 B.C., when uh, Artaxerxes gave a decree to issue a decree to Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls to uh, the Sunday or Monday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem in what is called Palm Sunday, but there's some debate as to whether it occurred actually on a, on a Sunday or Monday, but the day of the week is irrelevant. We know the date from Jewish calendar, and because of the date, we know it was exactly 173,880 days. So you have many different prophecies in Scripture that substantiate and validate the message of Scripture, and they're 
there aren't any parallels like that outside of Scripture. God is not against empiricism. He's not against the use of reason. You know, that too often is the the false juxtaposition that is presented by the secular philosopher, faith versus reason. What they don't understand is their own systems are ultimately based on a hidden faith assumption. And the issue is not faith versus reason. It is uh, the battle between independent reason and dependent reason. It is not a battle between uh, empiricism and, and faith. It is a battle between the independent use of empiricism and the dependent use of empiricism because God continuously throughout history gives empirical uh, validation of what he does in private. God never once gave uh, revelation in private that he didn't substantiate publicly. For example, when you have a private subjective experience with King Saul when he is first anointed by, by, uh, by Saul, it's given validation externally because uh, Saul is going to defeat the enemies of Israel as a sign that God is giving him his favor and has established him as the king over Israel. So this happens again and again and again. And you see, though, that even when, when man operates on empiricism and rationalism independently of God, it doesn't matter what validation, either through logic or, or empirical data that God, has, that God provides, when man holds rigidly to his independent use of reason and experience, doesn't matter what happens in front of him, he rejects it. And that's exactly what we see in verse 22. Verse 22, the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but both had it right, in, right before their eyes. Now, the problem here is that rationalism, and for in this next diagram on the sin nature, uh, I'm showing rationalism to the left here, if you follow the arrow. Here on the left, we see that one trend for the sin nature, morally, it's towards asceticism and legalism. Asceticism and legalism look to rig rigorous structures. The legalist wants a rigorous structure that tells him exactly what to do in every single situation. Well, the, the intellectual counterpart to that is rationalism. It's an intense emphasis on logical structure, autonomous rationalism. And in that use of rationalism, I'm using it in, in just sort of a, a, a general sense where, that it refers to both ra uh, technical rationalism and empiricism. It's man's use of autonomous reason. The opposite trend is, and, and morally is towards licentiousness, lasciviousness and antinomianism. Uh, licentiousness and antinomianism reject structure. Antinomianism, from the Greek word, Greek word meaning against law, is a rejection of any kind of moral absolute, the rejection of any kind of, of, uh, of standards and absolutes. So the counterpart to that intellectually is mysticism. Mysticism rejects logic as a structure. It doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to be rational. Truth is whatever I want it to be, whenever I want it to be, whatever it is. The mis depending on how I feel at the moment, depending on what my intuitive insight is at the time, I don't have to submit my feelings. I don't have to submit my uh, intuition to any kind of rigorous structure. So intellectually, 
you have opposing trends from the sin nature towards either rationalism or mysticism. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, let's look at what happened with the Jews. They wanted a sign. This was something that was consistent for the Jews. They had wisdom because they had the wisdom books. They had the books of Solomon, the Old Testament, so they're not looking for for wisdom as much as they're looking for a sign, some sort of confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And the place to look for this is in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Matthew chapter 12 is a key chapter in Matthew because this presents a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus has offered himself as Messiah to the entire nation. But in the first part of this chapter, the Pharisees, as the legal representatives of the nation, reject his his miracles. See, all of his miracles were providing empirical verification of his claim to be the Messiah. He was doing exa- everything the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. He was healing the lame. He was healing lepers. He was casting out demons. These were all understood to be signs of the Messiah. When he healed a leper, that had never happened before. And so when the rabbis saw that, they knew that that was a claim, that was a sign of the Messiah. That was a claim in and of itself that he was the Messiah. And yet they reject it. And in the first part of the chapter, the Pharisees claim that Jesus is casting out demons only in the power of demons. And so they have this presupposition that they're able to correctly interpret empirical data on their own. But see, their interpretation of his casting out demons is has already been pre-developed, presupposed that the, he, the Messiah... See, their presupposition was that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would validate their pharisaical... Uh, structure. He would validate all of the teachings of the Mishnah, and he would validate the, the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic Law. When Jesus came, he did not validate the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic Law. In fact, he said that if you were going to get into the kingdom of God, your righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he immediately offended the Pharisees from the starting point, so their, because their presupposition was that the Messiah would validate their system, Jesus didn't validate their system. No matter what he did in terms of signs, no matter how structured it was, no matter how much evidence he provided, they, they rejected it because it didn't fit their presupposition. Their starting point was apart from Scripture, and it structured their, their uh, line of thinking. Presuppositions often do that, and that's why it's important to think about what our basic assumptions are and to analyze them. Because of that, Jesus had given sign after sign after sign, but they were blind to it. And then in verse 38 we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Good night. You've already seen hundreds of signs. What are you looking for? And so Jesus answered and said to them, 
an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And here he uses the term evil and adulterous generation to refer to them. It is their generation that has seen the incarnate Son of God. It is their generation that has seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. It is their generation that has seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their generation has seen the greater Son of David incarnate in the flesh, and yet they reject it. So they are called an evil and adulterous generation. Adultery here is used in its primary sense of being unfaithful. You have to determine from context unfaithful to whom, and here it is unfaithful to God, and that means they are evil. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it. That is, he's already given some signs, but no more signs are going to be given. And Jesus never again from this point on Gives a, gives a public sign. Everything he does in terms of his miracles from this point on are done in, in privacy in a, in, among the group of disciples. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Notice here and in Jonah, it does not say that Jonah was in the belly of a whale. He was in the belly of a great fish. And there have been uh, historical examples of uh, whalers and fishermen who have been swallowed by large fish. And there was one story that I read about occurred back in the uh, 19th century, and they cut open a fish and pulled this guy out, and he had been bleached white from the uh, stomach acids of the fish. And that's probably what happened to Jonah as well, so that when he came marching into Nineveh to preach the gospel, this guy really looked bizarre after spending three days and three nights in the belly of the of the fish. He got their attention right away, and they responded to the message. And the men of Nineveh heard the gospel, and God postponed judgment. If you don't know the story of Jonah, God came to Jonah, who was a prophet in the northern kingdom. The enemy of Israel at that time was Assyria, and God told Jonah, said, I'm going to destroy Nineveh unless they repent. That means change their mind and and trust me, but I'm going to send you to Nineveh. Well, that would be like somebody coming to you today and say, or God coming to you today and saying, well, your job is to take the, uh, take the gospel to the Islamic terrorists. Some of you probably would not like that too much. Jonah didn't like it too much. He thought that would was unpatriotic, so he got on the nearest ship going in the opposite direction. God rerouted him through the use of this great fish that was prepared by God. It was either a special creation or it was just a uh, natural occurrence of a large fish that had that was large enough to swallow Jonah. And after three days in the belly of the fish, Jonah changed his mind about fulfilling God's plan for his life. And so uh, the fish swam up to the beach and regurgitated Jonah out on the beach. Well, after cleaning himself up, he hauled his way to Nineveh. And there he entered the city and began to proclaim the gospel according to the Old Testament, belief in God and belief that God would send a Messiah. Well, the people responded, and so God postponed the judgment for 200 years. Well, that really angered Jonah. So he had a little pity party and temper tantrum and sat outside the wall until God uh, uh, dealt with him in another remarkable way by causing a gourd vine to grow up over him. 
and that gourd vine provided shade for him, and he was glad about that. And then a worm came along and destroyed the gourd vine. That angered Jonah, and God used that as an illustration to teach Jonah that he doesn't have the right to judge God's plans and purposes in human history. God blesses whom he will and curses whom he will, and he runs history according to his plan, not according to our notions. See, that's the same problem that the Corinthians had and so many Christians have is they want to come to the Scriptures and come to God with certain presuppositions about how they think God ought to be and how they think God ought to work in human history. And then when uh, the Scriptures say otherwise, they say, well, that can't be be God, and so they turn their back on the Scriptures because they think that uh, everything ought to be run according to their presuppositions. And you see a lot of that today in most churches, basic rejection of the Scriptures. Rather than letting the Scriptures change the way we think, we want to change the Scriptures. Uh, Another instance of that is the fact that uh, there are more and more movements to put out uh, translations of the New Testament that are based in nonspecific language where you have uh, uh, gender confusion in the Scriptures over he's and she's and instead of sticking with what the text says. And that's just another example of, of how a modern culture wants to go in and restructure what God has said rather than go, let God speak for himself. So Jonah is the Old Testament type of what will happen when Jesus dies and is in the grave for three days and three nights. And the men of, and he uses this as an illustration to this evil and rebellious generation, the Pharisees, in verse 41 he states, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented. That means they changed their mind at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here, he says that referring to himself. Furthermore, he gives another empirical uh, evidence. The queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba who came to Solomon back in the Old Testament, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So he is showing that historically there was both the incident with Jonah and in the life of the Queen of Sheba, there was positive volition that accepted the gospel and without the great evidence that is present before this generation. So they had a sign But they rejected that sign, and so there was only going to be one more sign given, and that was the sign of resurrection. It was given twice, first with Jesus brought Lazarus forth from the dead, and then uh, when Jesus himself rose from the dead after spending three days and three nights in the grave. So this is just an illustration of how autonomous reason and autonomous empiricism presupposes that God's going to act a certain way, When God then comes in and acts the way God determines, they reject that because it doesn't fit their preconceived assumptions of how God is going to operate. And that is the problem in Corinth, and it is a problem of their ultimate starting point. Rather than starting with God, they are starting with their own finite reason or their own finite experience. And the only thing you can conclude when you have a finite starting point 
The only thing you can come to from a finite starting point is a finite conclusion. You can never argue from finite starting points to universals. It never has worked and never will work in philosophy. And this is the challenge that Paul is setting forth here in 1 Corinthians 1, is that the believer must completely renovate the way he thinks. His starting point of knowledge is no longer autonomous reason or experience, it must be the Word of God. And the Word of God is radically different from the way man, autonomous man, thinks reality is. And this is exemplified in salvation. Verse 23, Paul states, But we preach, but emphasizes the contrast, but we preach Christ crucified. A crucified Savior was completely contrary to anything the Greeks would want in life. The Greeks were looking for something that would bring success and value in life. They were looking for something that would be coming from the, let's say, the upper class and not looking to someone who died the death of a criminal. And Jesus died the lowest form of death for the lowest form of criminal, and they couldn't imagine that their salvation would be based on something that was so so much an, an example of the lower class. So they rejected that. It didn't fit their preconceived notion of how God would enter into human history. But Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, which to the Jews is a stumbling block because they did not accept Jesus as Messiah. And to the Greeks it was foolishness because it didn't fit their preconceived notions of how a God would enter into human history. Then in verse 24 we read, But unto them which are called, that is to believers, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, I want you to notice just a couple of things in terms of the exegesis of this particular verse. It starts off, to them. To them is a uh, third-person plural, dative of advantage of the pronoun autas, and then it is followed by a relative clause, the articular form of the uh, participle to call. Once again, that too is in the dative. So this is referring, it is unto them and for their advantage, those which are called, both Jews and Greeks. And then the next phrase looks to us like it should be Christ and looks like the verb might be left out. Christ is the power of God. But in the Scripture, Christ is in the accusative case. Now, the accusative case is not the subject case. That's the nominative case. Uh, The accusative case is the object case. So that tells us we have to look elsewhere for the verb. And the elsewhere is back in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. And then the rest is just an aside. And then... The message is Christ. That's what's left out. You really go back to the main verb, preaching. For we preach Christ, and there it's an accusative case, so we're picking it up from there. Christ is the object of the preaching because he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, the thing to note here is that Paul does not emphasize Christ as truth. Truth was a major issue in Greek thought, so he wants to... He wants to sidestep the truth issue because that would get them all embroiled in all kinds of debates and issues. They would argue what is the nature of truth, and like Pilate asked the question, what is truth? He wants to shift it. 
shift the focus, so he uses the term dunamis, the power of God. Now, this is important to understand here that power, we often think of power as strength, as force. And that's not what we talk about. When we talk about the Holy Spirit's the power for living the Christian life, it's don't envision some sort of like an electrical power or some kind of electrical strengthening where somehow people get the idea that, that the Holy Spirit sort of overrides our volition and makes it easier for us to obey. That's not the kind of power. The word really has to do with ability. He gives us an ability now. And that ability, notice the, the connection here in the text, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power is related to wisdom. And this is the whole point in understanding the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is that the filling of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit are related to knowledge, understanding truth. We're going to get into this same doctrine in the second hour with First John. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It is truth that makes us free. It is truth, divine viewpoint truth, that provides that freedom and that ability to live free from the constraints of the sin nature. The the point that Paul makes in in, uh, Romans chapter 6 is that we have to reckon ourselves. And that word in the the Greek means it's logizomine. It means to think in terms of the fact that the sin nature is dead. It has to do with knowledge, not some sort of metaphysical infusion uh, of power. And, of course, Jesus said that it was the Holy Spirit who would guide us into all truth. So the emphasis here is not on some sort of power that's going to boost you up so that you can live the Christian life better, but that the ability comes from a knowledge of the truth. And once you know the truth, uh, under the by walking by the Holy Spirit, we can apply the truth. So here we see this emphasis here that Christ, it is the message of Christ that is the starting point to experience the real ability that God has for us related to the wisdom of God. Unfortunately, man can't know the wisdom of God on his own, starting from his own starting point. And unless he's saved, it's meaningless to him. And that's going to be the subject of chapter 2, as how unsaved man, natural man, the soulish man, doesn't have the capacity to understand the truth of God. He can only understand it, and he can only understand the gospel because God the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it clear to them. But the rest of Bible doctrine is going to be fuzzy and unclear because they are unsaved. They don't have the capacity yet to understand all that God has given us. Verse 25 goes on to explain the contrast because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Here we have the comparative that even if God were foolish, and he's not, but he's using this in a, in a hyperbolic figure of speech, the foolishness of God, if God were a fool, is wiser than men. Even God at his worst is better than man at his best. That's the upshot that he's saying here, and it's just a figure of speech. It's not saying that God is foolish or that God is weak. It is simply stating this by comparison to make the point that man at his very best can never be in the same league as God at his worst. Then we come to verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. See, it is the 
when Paul would go into the cities and he would begin to preach the gospel, the ones who responded were not always and were rarely the leaders. They were rarely the administrative leaders, the political leaders. They were not the monarchs. They were not the business leaders. They were not the intellectual leaders. They were frequently just the everyday average worker, the slave, the uh, like Lydia, the seller of purple dye. They would be the people who were working down at the docks in Corinth, cleaning out the ships. And yet, it, in God's plan, it is not man at his best emphasizing human ability that's going to solve man's problems. And this is the whole point is that Paul is making here, is that in the final analysis, we can't emphasize human ability because we have to learn that everything is based on God. It's based on his power, his provision, and what he has supplied for us in grace. So God is demonstrating in human history that the creature cannot live independently from God, that the creature cannot solve his problems independently from God. The creature can't even gain accurate knowledge of the creation as a whole independently from God. So not many wise men after the flesh are called. That is because they are too impressed with their own intellectual ability to humble themselves to accept the complete provision of salvation because Man, independent from God, does not understand how God's system works. They want to define reality in a different way from God. They want to define justice differently from God. Um, man, man looks at the cross and says, I can't understand how God can, can uh, send his son to die on the cross. First of all, capital punishment is some sort of horrible thing. For God to use capital punishment to... Uh, to uh, uh, be the basis for saving mankind just doesn't fit my scenario. Capital punishment is just some horrible, primitive, uh, barbaric concept, and God would never stoop that low. And that's the presupposition. So we have, we have views on justice. We have views on execution. We have views on how you pay the penalty for things that are contrary to the way God has structured the universe. And until you submit your thinking to God's thinking and realize that God is the one who defines reality, we don't define it on our own, you will never come to understand what the Scripture says. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things, that is, the things that do not have value in the value system of the world. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's making a point that it is not human ability, human wisdom, human achievement, human intellectual capability that gets you anywhere. It is dependence upon God. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are strong. Then in verse 28, And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing or the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. God is demonstrating. This is all part of the angelic conflict. In the angelic conflict, in Satan's fall, Satan is basically claiming that the creature is able to run creation apart from God, to live his life independent from God. So what God is demonstrating in each dispensation is that no matter what ability man has, no matter how much grace God gives man, man cannot live his own apart from God at any level. It will always, it will always collapse. 
So God is demonstrating through his plan of salvation that nothing in life is dependent on human ability, whether it's human intellectual ability or human ability in morality or ritual or religion or any other thing. It is complete complete dependence on the cross. That's the point given in verse 29, that no man should boast before God. He has devised a system that completely excludes human ability in any arena. Because if at any level we can say that somehow I did something right, I was smart enough to believe the gospel, I was smart enough to understand the truth, I was smart enough to respond. If we can at any point say that it was based upon our own ability, then we have something to boast about to God. But God is saying, I built the entire system of salvation, the entire plan of salvation based upon sending my son to die on the cross as a substitute for man's sin to demonstrate that man can't do anything apart from me. It totally excludes human ability, human intellectual achievement, human moral achievement. Everything is dependent upon God and his, the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And this is what brings us to, to our quote that we find in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence, and that comes from Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Arrogance is completely rejected. Human ability is completely rejected. And in Jeremiah 9.23 we read, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches. It's not on human achievement, human wealth, human intellectual ability, or human strength. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. This is the issue, to understand and know God. And in order to understand and know God, we have to give up that human viewpoint way of knowledge. We have to give up the autonomous use of reason. We have to give up the autonomous uh, use of empiricism. And we have to have our starting point in God. If you continue to hold on to an autonomous starting point, you will never get to a point of understanding what God has to say to you in the Scriptures. You have to give that up. A finite starting point is never going to get you outside of the realm of finitude. Let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Notice once again we come back to the key elements in the character of God which represent his integrity. We have, first of all, his perfect righteousness, second, his justice, and third, his love. Righteousness represents the standard of God's character. God defines ultimate reality and ultimately what is right and what is wrong because of who he is. His justice is the application of that standard toward his creatures. And love is expressed in terms of his consistent faithfulness. That's why you have this fantastic Hebrew word, chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D, and it is best translated God's faithful, enduring love. And it is always related to God's consistent actions 
for the best or for the benefit of his creatures. He always knows what is right and what is best for his creatures. When the righteousness of God is when the righteousness of God is when is violated, then the justice of God must discipline. When the righteousness of God is met, then the justice of God blesses. So that when the righteousness of God looks at the sinner, the justice of God must discipline or curse or condemn, but the love of God provides a solution. And at the cross, what happens is Jesus Christ pays the penalty for sin. So that at the cross, let me turn to another screen here. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, all of our sins, here's the creature, mankind here, and man it lacks righteousness. But all our sin is poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. So Scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. As a result of that, Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed or credited to the believer at the instant of salvation so that he gains that perfect righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's never based on anything we've done. God's blessing is always directed toward the perfect righteousness we have as a result of faith in Christ. When God, in his perfect righteousness, looks down at mankind, then God can declare man just are righteous because he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. As a result of seeing the perfect righteousness of Christ, God declares us justified. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. As a result of that, the believer then is given new life and new capacities, and that's called regeneration or being born again. So we are to boast in the fact that we understand and know God because we understand his character, we understand the mechanics of salvation, and salvation itself exemplifies and pictures for us the character of God in terms of his righteousness, justice, and love. And this is something that both the Greeks and the Jews operating on either their system of empiricism or rationalism, for the Jews their system of religion could not come to understand. They thought that somehow it was based in human ability, either their intellectual ability or their religious and moral ability. And so in verses 30 and 31, we see the answer to the question, where is the scribe? In other words, where is the religious legalist in his system? And in verses 30 and 31, Paul demonstrates that that system is also a failure. But of him, we read in verse 30, or which is, I'm reading from the New King James here, but of him, which is a more accurate translation than the New American Standard. New American Standard says, but by his doing. Literally, it is the Greek preposition ek plus the genitive of autos, the preposition of source indicating from the source of God. But from the source of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Notice it is not due to your human ability, as the scribes would emphasize. It's not due to your morality. It's not due to your religious compliance or legalistic observance. It is due to your to the work of God, for from him, ultimately from the source of him, you are in Christ Jesus. 
And it is Christ Jesus who became to us three things. Wisdom, or four things, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The issue then is the cross. The cross itself completely contradicts all human viewpoint systems of thought. It violates their concept of justice. It violates their concept of righteousness. It violates the concept that somehow man must do something. Somehow, in some way, man must do something to either gain or to keep salvation. And what Paul is emphasizing here is that God has devised a plan that completely excludes all human ability and effort, whether it's moral ability or intellectual ability. It is of him that we are in Christ Jesus. And it is Christ Jesus through the cross that is the example of God's wisdom. That is, the cross is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Everything in God's system, everything in God's character, everything in God's concept of justice is focused at the cross. And if the cross is rejected, it is a rejection of God's entire way of administrating the universe. And when man rejects the cross, man is saying, I really think things ought to operate a different way. I really think there's a better system of law and justice, a better system of accountability, and God really can't run the universe very well. That's the same thing that Satan said. I can do it better. And it is a judgment on God, and it is a rejection of reality in the universe as God has defined it. So Paul says, of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. And that wisdom consists of three things, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We have just explained the concept of righteousness, which is the fact that at the cross, Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us when we have faith alone in Christ alone. And it is on the basis of that imputed righteousness that God saves us. He is demonstrating that at no level is it dependent on what man does. It is dependent exclusively on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Secondly, it is sanctification. Sanctification means that we are at that point set apart under God. At the instant that we receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are completely set apart unto God. We are isolated from the world system. We are set apart unto God positionally, and we are placed in Christ. This is the great doctrine that Paul has started with in First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, and that is the understanding that at the cross we are placed in Christ. This is a positional identification. We are identified, according to Romans 6, 3 through 6, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what is known as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And it is that that sets us apart and makes us a uniquely new creature in Christ, And because of that new position in Christ and that new reality, we now can face and address every problem in life from a new vantage point. 
problem is that because most Christians are never taught positional truth, they're never taught what we have in Christ, they're never taught about the 40 things that we have in Christ at the moment of salvation and what they mean in terms of day-to-day decision-making and living, they never quite seem to get their act together in living the Christian life. Christ is the wisdom of God. He's first our righteousness, second, the basis for sanctification because we are set apart in Christ, and third, redemption. Redemption because we have been purchased, we have been bought with a price. Redemption is the Greek word apolutrosis, which is the key word for for redemption. Either lutrao or apolutrao are the key words for redemption, which means to be set free for a ransom. It means to purchase. It means to pay a redemption price. It always emphasizes the payment of a price. It is the basis for freedom in John 8, 34, Romans 6, 17, and 2 Peter 2, 19. The classic passage for this is in Romans chapter, I mean John chapter 8, verses 31 and following. Jesus has been involved in a discussion with the Jews, and there have been many that have trusted in him. But there's one small segment there of Pharisees who rejected him. Verse 31, Jesus is addressing the Jews who had believed in him and says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him. So among these Jews that had believed on him, there are those who had not, And they're rejecting that they don't understand the concept. They say, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? The point is that they're rejecting reality at that point. They were enslaved four different ways. They were enslaved to the Mosaic law. They were enslaved to the Roman uh, system because they were under the heel of the Roman Empire. They were enslaved to their own legalistic system, the Pharisaical system, and then they were enslaved to the sin nature. So they were enslaved four ways, yet they had the gall to think that that, uh, because they were just genetically related to Abraham, that they were already free. Jesus just focuses on that one element of slavery in his answer in verse 34. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And so every single human being is born with a sin nature and is born enslaved to sin. There has to be a means of freedom. This is what redemption is all about because it pays the purchase price and frees us from the slave market of sin. Galatians 3.10 states, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So the Jewish legalist that Paul is dealing with The Jewish legalists that Jesus dealt with in John 10 are under the curse of the law. Paul states, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So the law demanded 100% obedience, and any disobedience, no matter how minor, meant that you were guilty of disobedience of the whole. Furthermore, he states now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by means of faith. Righteousness doesn't come through morality, through human effort, but through faith in Christ. Verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And then in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
So freedom comes only through redemption. Christ paid the purchase price to free us from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So let's summarize quickly as we close the doctrine of redemption. First of all, redemption describes salvation from the viewpoint of a ransom paid on the cross for salvation. Now, the ransom isn't paid to someone. The, the, the analogy doesn't go that far. In the Middle Ages, they used to try to figure out the ransom was paid to Satan. But the, the price is paid. There has to be a penalty paid. Point number two, redemption portrays the human race as slaves born into the slave market of sin. Third, redemption describes the purchase of those sin slaves and the potential provision of freedom. The picture is of slaves in the slave market who have had their chains taken off. Christ actually paid the penalty for the sins of every single person. Now, the issue is, are you going to step out of the slave market or not? Are you going to accept the payment price or stay in the slave market? The payment price, point number four, the payment price is the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a symbol or a representative analogy of his spiritual death on the cross. It was not his physical death. It's not the physical blood that saved us because, number one, the penalty for sin was spiritual death and separation from God. Number two, Jesus bore the penalty of sin between 12 noon and 3 p.m. before he ever died physically. John states that it when it was finished, then he said, I thirst. And then the last thing that Jesus said was, it is finished. And then he died physically. The payment price was the blood of Christ. The precious blood is of a lamb without spot or blemish. And then point number five, there are eight results of redemption. We are delivered from the curse of the law, Galatians 3, 13, and Galatians 4, 4 through 6. Second, we have the forgiveness of sin, Ephesians 1, 7, and Colossians 1, 14. Third, redemption is the basis for our justification, Romans 3, 24. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty, we can then receive his perfect righteousness and the imputation of his perfect righteousness. Fourth, redemption is the basis for our sanctification, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Fifth, redemption is the basis for our eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9, 15. Sixth, redemption is the basis for the strategic victory of Jesus Christ in the angelic conflict, Colossians 2, 14 through 15, and Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Seventh, redemption of the soul and salvation results in redemption of the body at resurrection at the rapture, Ephesians 1.14, Romans 8.23, and Ephesians 4.30. And then eighth, redemption views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of our sins. The option then is to believe in Christ. Your sins have been paid for in full. The issue is not what you've, how you've sinned. The issue is not your failures. The issue is not uh, what you've done or what you haven't done. The issue is whether or not you accept that payment on your behalf. That's why salvation is so simple. It is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to see the 
magnificent plan of your salvation, which is so contrary to the way uh, man in his independence thinks things ought to be. There's a simple solution. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. You have done all the work so that nothing is dependent upon our own ability, our own intellectual capability, our, our own moral ability. It is based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So right now, if there's anyone here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior, this is your opportunity to make that decision. That's all that is necessary for eternal life. Jesus Christ did it all. You don't have to do anything. All you do is simply accept the free gift. You put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning, that we may see how they apply to our own thinking, that we may change our thinking and conform it to the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.